0: Black arts have no nonsense about them. Mexican drug minion Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo conducted an odd mix of magical rituals, a mishmash of ceremonies that combined his mother's Cuban magic with ancient Mayan and Aztec practices. He also used a dose of Nagualism, I hope I pronounced that correctly, which is a form of black magic that solicits magical powers from animals. In the 1980s, he convinced the northern Mexico drug lords, the Hernandez family, that his magic could help them keep their market against drug lords from southern Mexico and help them against the United States' stepped-up narcotic efforts. Constanzo and his cult of sub-minions became an integral part of the Hernandez drug trade. His magical abilities were considered a key component of his success. Part of his magic entailed human sacrifices, which were often particularly cruel, including one sacrifice where the victim was slowly skinned alive. And, in keeping with Aztec tradition, often involved tearing the victim's hearts out. The sacrifices were designed to give Constanzo spiritual power in the, for- <clears throat> in the form of slaves in the netherworld. It's a common belief in Mexican black magic that torture enables a torturer to capture the soul of the victim, who, through the ordeal, comes to fear the torture completely, eternally. An added plus, the energy from the pain and fear of the victim is appropriated sacramentally by the torturer, and this energy gives him increased magical strength. After human sacrifice, the Constanzo cult boiled the body parts in an iron kettle with animal blood, which they drank, believing that the blood made them unstoppable in battle. Things started started to unravel for Constanzo after his ultimate human sacrifice. The offer of a blonde, blue eyed American, a University of Texas student named Mark Kilroy. In nineteen eighty nine, during spring break at Brownsville, Texas, Kilroy and a friend walked back toward the bridge leading to Brownsville after drinking late into the night at a bar in Metamora, Mexico, or Metamora, Mexico. The friend stopped to urinate behind some trees. When he came back, Kilroy had disappeared. Initial investigations turned up nothing but authorities were eventually alerted to weird rituals that had supposedly been taking place at a a local ranch. The Mexican police investigated and found candles, chicken bones, and other remains associated with the pagan rituals that still breathe beneath Mexico's Catholic surface. Uh, superstitious themselves, the Mexican police were apprehensive about investigating, so they turned the matter over to the U.S. officials who unraveled the bizarre torture and murder of the sacrificial victim Mark Heroy, whose heart, genitals, and spine had been used to make a magical stew. Okay, and up to this point, Constanzo's cult had primarily sacrificed to the drug dealers, so no one <laughs> gave a frick, but now people cared. And the Mexican authorities were under intense pressure to capture Constanzo. They tracked him to his Mexico City apartment. Brief gunfire was exchanged. Then Constanzo ordered a follower to shoot him. The police found Constanzo and his boyfriend embraced in a closet, both dead from machine gun wounds. All right. So Constanzo seems to have been born into a constant sense of existential anxiety. His mother suffered through the Castro Revolution and had immigrated and had to immigrate to the United States, where she gave birth to Adolfo in 1962, when she was 15 years old. She had three children by three different men. She raised Adolfo Catholic, but also taught him voodoo, and his stepfather was involved in the occult. His mom was also a petty criminal and involved the teenage Constanzo in her activities. On top of all that, Constanzo became of age in the quote-unquote cocaine cowboy Miami of the early 1980s. A young man with that kind of upbringing is going to be unsettled, (laughs) to say the least. He's going to turn to something for strength. What better than the dark powers? There is, after all, a primordial belief that ugliness and darkness bring power. Constanzo's rationale was the same as as that of primitive headhunters, says Professor Professor Karl Raschke who have always believed that violence and gore have a supernatural nimbus around them. In order to harness those supernatural forces, one must kill, torture, and maim. That was in Rashke's book, Painted Black, which, by the way, has been discredited, but not for the point I cited here. Uh, discredited because Rashke was blamed for kind of fueling the satanic worship um, frenzy of the 80s and 90s, something that was totally overblown. And Raschke took a lot of heat for basically um, fanning those flames unnecessarily. But anyway, um, that, that quote stands. He is a professor, legitimate University of Denver, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, uh, G.K. Chesterton discussed the same phenomenon in his chapter, The Demons and the Philosophers, in his most righteous book, The Everlasting Man. And let me read you this Cheston quote Some impulse, perhaps a sort of desperate impulse, drove men to the darker powers when dealing with practical problems. There was a sort of secret and perverse feeling that the darker powers would really do things, that they had no nonsense about them. But with the appeal to lower spirits comes the horrible notion that the gesture must be very low, that it must be a monkey trick of of an utterly ugly and unworthy sort. Sooner or later, man deliberately sets himself to do the most disgusting thing he can think of, it is felt that the extreme of evil will exert a sort of attention or answer from the evil powers underneath the surface of the world. That's a heck of a quote. I've read that quote over literally 50 times in my life. It's pretty powerful, I guess. <laughs> that term's grossly overused. But anyway, the bottom line is when a man is up against it, he's going to look for help. Allies, weapons, forces, anything to get him through the ordeal. And when an entire society is up against it, you're going to find a lot of people looking for help. And a lot of those people will allow their desperation to drive them to the darker powers. Now, Europe was up against it in the 14th and 15th centuries. As I cataloged last week, this was the era of the Black Death. A discredited Catholic Church, the Hundred Years' of War, constant Muslim pressure, the fall of Constantinople, and many other problems. And by the way, in that catalog, I didn't mention all the freaking famine, floods, and earthquakes. They seem to have a ton of them in the 1300s. But this was also the era of the rise of witchcraft and black magic. Now, these things had existed previously, but this era saw a distinct uptick. Now, Of course, modern historians continue to debate how much actual witchcraft and black magic were occurring, but something was clearly going on. In 1486, Heinrich Kramer published Malleus Maleficarum, The Hammer of Witches. The misogynistic book displayed hatred of minorities and women, and an irrational terror of secret plots, but it was popular. From 1486 to the first decades of the 1500s, more copies of it were printed than of any other book except the Bible. Kramer thought he was onto something and sold the book, and people were saying, Yeah, yeah, something's going on here. So, I mean, so yeah, so this book was sensationalistic and often untrustworthy, but clearly a lot of people thought something evil was afoot, and it wasn't just a craze. Exaggerated, perhaps, although no one knows for sure, but not just a craze. These centuries, for instance, witnessed the rise of the Luciferians, folks in Bohemia and Austria who openly worshiped the devil engaged in ritualistic sexual orgies and believe they flew long distances at night, magically, which is a foretaste of the witch's broomstick. Yeah, I wrote down here, ritualistic sexual orgies. Orgies, excuse me. <coughs> not sure what other type there are. I think that's somewhat redundant, maybe not. The rise of black magic was enough of a concern back in the 1300s and 1400s to prompt a series of ecclesiastical combinations. Condemnations. Excuse me. The Senate of Benevento in thirteen seventy eight forbade all magic. Cardinal Louis of Bourbon forbade sorcery and belief in its efficiency or efficacy at the Synod of Langres. And I'm not pronouncing that correctly. In fourteen o four, in fourteen o nine, Pope Alexander V ordered the Inquisitor of Avignon to take charge of sorcerers and invokers of demons an order reiterated by Pope Martin V on February 3rd, 1418. Martin V's election to the papacy, by the way, and you may remember from last week, marked the end of the Great Western Schism. Now this guy had a ton of stuff to take care of, but about 10 weeks into his papacy, he took the time out to address the issue of black magic and sorcery. Finally, Pope Innocent VIII issued a decree in 1484 condemning witchcraft as heresy. Now, popes and bishops have their faults, but wasting time on things that don't exist isn't one of them. There is in short no doubt that the upheaval of the 1300s impelled many people to turn to the black art, to the black arts. In the words of historian Geoffrey Burton Russell, quote, "There is ample evidence that witch beliefs and practices did exist." and that the social pressures of the 14th and 15th centuries worked to increase the actual level of witch activity. And because that's not an exact quote, you can check it out yourself, in the witchcraft in the Middle Ages, uh, the chapter is The Beginning of the Witch Craze, 1360-1427. And the records do indicate that there are women who were, <laughs> or thought they were witches, like Catherine de who made a startling confession, albeit under torture, In 1335, about her exploits in France. Ten years previously, Dolores said, she had had an affair with a shepherd who persuaded her to make a pact with Satan. They stole human remains from a local cemetery and put them in a fire. She then cut her left arm and let a few drops of blood fall into the fire while muttering strange words. A demon named Beret, B E R I T appeared in the form of a purplish flame he bestowed witchcraft powers on her. Every Saturday, she'd fall into a deep sleep and be transported to a witch's assembly, where she'd submit sexually to a goat, participate in orgies, eat children, and drink nasty potions. At the time of Delors' dark activity, Western Europe, and especially France, was in great turmoil due to economic depression, land shortages, and the Great Famine of 1315-1317. And it's lesser versions. France was wrapped with famines in 1304, 1305, 1310, 1330, 1349, 1358, 1371, 1374, 1390. You get the picture. Um, So the lesson here, individuals and societies redefine themselves in response to upheaval. Or like I said last week, existential challenge provokes essential change. The black magic craze of the 1300s and 1400s is just one example. There are many others. I'd be willing to bet that if you look at any era of societal upheaval, you'll always find in its wake a lot of unusual practices that would have been either marginal or non-existent immediately prior to the upheaval. And I'm going to quote to you from Norman Cohn in his awesome book, The Pursuit of the Millennium. Again and again, one finds that a particular outbreak of revolutionary millenarianism, like the the end-of-the-world type stuff, took place against a background of disaster, the plagues that precluded the First Crusade and the flagellant movements of 1260, 1348, 1391, and 1400. The famines that precluded the First and Second Crusade and the popular crusading movements of 1309 to 1320, the flagellant movement of 1296, the movements around Eon and the pseudo-Baldwin, the spectacular rise in prices that precluded the revolution at Munster. Something we should probably talk about at some point. Uh, check out Dan Carlin. Uh, gosh darn it. it's probably the best episode. and I can't remember it, but his, his uh, series on Munster is amazing. Anyway, the greatest wave of millenari- millenarian excitement, says Cohn. One which swept through the whole of society was precipitated by the most universal natural disaster of the Middle Ages, the Black Death. Now, in this podcast episode, these essays, I am focused on the Middle Ages because I'm trying to make an overarching point. The Thomas Aquinas synthesis from the 1200s, the mid-1200s, didn't weather away because it was disproven or Aquinas himself discredited. It withered away because Western civilization, quite frankly, freaked the frick out. (laughs) They just freaked out in the face of disasters and looked for something different. It was an unfortunate turn for Western culture and, indeed, the whole world. Again, for things I'm going to continue to explore for the next, I don't know, I'm guessing two or three months. Anyway. But, unless any of you think this phenomenon, essential changes in response to existential challenges, is unique to the Middle Ages, it isn't. There are tons of examples. And if you go back in a long time ago, I can't remember the podcast, I talk about big spiritual-type change that took place um, after Alexander the Great, you know, combined civilizations and people's their little worlds were all disrupted by this, this ecumenical empire, something that Vogelin writes about, Eric Vogelin writes about. But here I'm going to just look at World War I. The practice of magic and the occult increased dramatically in Europe following World War I an era of intense disappointment in earthly affairs. After the exuberant optimism that infused the opening years of the 20th century, things fell apart, horribly, murderously, in the Great War. The culture was shocked, crushed, people responded in various ways, including by turning to the occult. In the words of the historian of the modern occult, James Webb, in his In the post-World War I era, quote, material reality represented for many people hardship, injustice, and lack of hope. They turned naturally to the immaterial realities in all fields of human action, unquote. And that is from another just awesome book um, called The Occult Establishment. James Webb wrote it. James Webb himself was a bizarre dude. I'm going to have a whole podcast on him at some point, but he like believed in the occult i don't think he practiced it but he didn't believe in the occult either so people like me i'm kind of like yeah that stuff doesn't exist that's that's where i lean to naturally i guess or supernaturally or preternaturally whatever so people like me kind of like yeah well web you're kind of not yourself and then but then people in the occult just didn't like him because he didn't buy into it he just he really straddled the fence and he committed suicide when he's in his 30s. And by all accounts, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. It's really a huge loss. Anyway, I'm going to continue to explore all these phenomenon in future essays and podcasts, so stay tuned.